Take your seats. Uh, I know Miss Jen Lewis is going to join me here in just a moment. Uh, I do want to just draw your attention. Uh, we, we don't stop worshiping when the band stops playing. I'm grateful for them. I'm grateful for the ways they lead us in song. But we don't stop worshiping now. And we, we continue to worship not only through going to God's word, but in the way that we live out our lives in our homes, in our workplace, on our campuses. That, that is all a spiritual act of worship. And we're going to see that in Romans chapter 12. Actually, if you'd like to turn there uh, to join with me today, Romans chapter 12. But, you know, there's another way that we worship as a church, and that's through giving. And I do want to just direct our attention just for a moment, to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 12. Paul says this to the church in Corinth. He says this, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. He, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for the food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Amen. It can be difficult to hear words like that and, and realize that I just made the connection to our worship. But can we as a church not miss this connection? Paul actually intends these words to sound the way that they do. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, he wrote this not only to the church in Corinth, he wrote it to us today as a church. If I were a prosperity preacher, I might say this. Well, if you sow bountifully, God will bless you so that you can live in luxury and not in want. But that's not what Paul's point is here. No, actually... Paul really spells it out for us in verse 11 when he says this. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. That, that's at the heart of why it is that we give. That's at the heart of our worship as givers. God pours out his blessings on his people who have proved that they can be trusted with his resources. God blesses us for this reason alone. So that we can be generous. So that that can overflow to others. So church, thank you for the ways that you give, whether that's online, whether that's here in person as we're gathered together in the kiosk. Maybe you still give via text. Uh, maybe, any variety of ways that people give. I, I know some time ago we had a couple pull up with just an envelope full of cash. And, and I was just so grateful. Like, that's old school. But the heart's the same, isn't it? Thank you for the ways that you're generous using the resources that God's given for his glory in the church. Now, Miss Jen, uh, I just want to turn my attention to you to ask, can we pray for you? Because Jay didn't, la didn't laugh at all last Sunday. And um, 
what is it like to live with such a man that doesn't laugh at jokes? <laughs> we do have a different taste of jokes, okay. but I can make him laugh. You can make him laugh. Can make him laugh. <laughs> so now that I've got you in front of the whole church, <laughs> dare I ask how you make it? No, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I, th- I was thinking, man, that's got to be rough on you living in a house like that. So now we know how to pray for you yes. and for your kids. Uh, no, actually, Jay, all joking aside, I'm really glad you didn't laugh. Those jokes were terrible. So <laughs> next year, next year we got to up the game for Jay Lewis. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll get there. Anyway, would you do us a favor today and read Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2? Let's look at God's word together, church. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Hmm. Church, would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you for your word that it is a light for our lives. But we confess that we are in constant need of illumination in the darkness of our, our hearts, in the darkness of our mind, where our eyes don't see perfectly, where our ears don't hear perfectly. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come. Bring your word to life in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you, Miss Jen. I love that we were laughing together last Sunday as a church. I, I meant to acknowledge it on Father's Day. And, and I love hearing us laugh together, not at each other, but just there's something good about the church when it's gathered. Not only having the sobriety of moments like we'll have in, in a bit with communion, uh, not only having those joyful moments like I loved hearing your voices this morning in worship singing free. Just, just the voices, the band drops out and we're just we're kind of shouting it together. It's wonderful. But I loved hearing us laugh together last week as well. Those are, those are good gifts from God for us as a church, aren't they? Yes. And I just want to acknowledge as well, you know, we had a tongue and interpretation this morning. And I know that doesn't happen very often. And we're going we're gonna to look a bit more at some of the gifts of the Spirit next Sunday in our sermon uh, as we continue through the book of Romans and specifically in chapter 12. And we're going to hear, I hope that we'll even hear some testimonies of things that God's doing as he continues to stir his gifts in the church. But I also want to just bring clarity to this. You know, that may be out of the norm, but it's still a gift of God to us as a church. That we're able to receive from that. So in the same way that I was reading from, from Corinthians about giving we are given instruction in Romans chapter 12 and in the book of Ephesians and in, in Corinthians about, especially in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, about the gifts of the Spirit. And actually we're, we're told specifically that if there is a public tongue, that there should be an interpretation and that that should be weighed by the elders. And if I'm not mistaken, that was one of the elders' voices I heard involved in that gift of the Spirit. But... I want those that are guests here today to know that we actually take that quite seriously. And we do weigh those things. And our prayer in the midst of that, 
although it may not be something that is quote-unquote normal, that it is still a gift of God for the church to build up, to strengthen, to encourage, to bring the church to unity. And our prayer as pastors in this church is that was your experience. That was the fruit of hearing something like a tongue and interpretation. You know, one of the things that I respect most about our prophetic team, those that minister to us through the gifts of the Spirit, especially as the church is gathered, and maybe in some of your community groups this is the experience as well, but that's, that's a real step of faith to, to step out in obedience in that way. It's kind of this vulnerable moment. Uh, the best way I've known how to describe it over the years, uh, I, I'm not, I don't quite operate in that same way. That's not particularly one of the gifts that I've been given, but I almost describe it like the mouth sweats, right? You're just like, I got to obey. I got to obey. You know, and, and it's just, I don't mean that to sound funny. I'm not trying to make fun of the gifts of the Spirit, but you just realize like God is moving in a particular way. And there's this aspect of surrender that we have to have in those moments. Not only to obey and to step out in the particular gift of the Spirit, but also to receive. I'm not saying check your mind at the door. But can we be a church that has a heart posture? This is, this is, can we be a church that has a heart posture to receive from the gifts of the Spirit that God gives this church? Can we be a church that has a heart posture to pursue the gifts of the Spirit that God has given to His church. It serves a purpose. It serves a purpose in the church, and we want to pursue that. We're going to look at that a bit more next Sunday as well. For this Sunday, I was thinking about a couple weeks ago, uh, we have a new puppy in our house. His name's Duncan, and he's awesome. Um, but I had to fix a fence. And I'm not great at that kind of thing. I'll just confess that up front. If you ever hear me saying I need to fix something, just assume it probably went poorly. Or it was a miracle that it worked after, the, after I was trying to do something with it. So it is specifically this section of our fence where the gate and, and kind of the, the solid fence, are. there's the hinge there. And there was this open part to it. So I was trying to, I loosened the bolt on this hinge and I got it all fixed. And then I stood up and realized the top part of the gate was unhinged. That wasn't what I needed to fix. And yet, in the midst of fixing one problem, I created a whole new one. You ever had that happen in a repair? You get to that place where you're just like, that's, oh, come on. I think we all have those moments, whether it's a fence or it's a spreadsheet or it's anything in life, maybe a relationship that goes unhinged. Isn't it good news, though, that in our faith, God in his word never leaves us unhinged? In, in, in working to bring correction to something, in working to actually even kind of anchor us rightly and how it is that, that things are supposed to work in life, we're not left unhinged. In focusing on one thing, God, through his word, never leaves something else broken. It's why we believe in the whole counsel of God's word. It's why it is that we believe in, in looking at scripture as a whole story that points to Christ. It's why that's important for us to understand as we look to God's word. See, Romans chapter 12 represents a bit of a hinge in the book of Romans. It's going to get very, very practical. My guess is it's going to get uncomfortably close to life for us. 
I only say that because over the last few months as I've been studying it, it's gotten uncomfortably close to my life. But we're not left unhinged. God doesn't want us to live an unhinged faith where we're focused on one thing or the other when he provides for both. So as we get to this passage, I want us to recognize what's happening. Paul's kind of whole tone is changing to agree. He's going to get very practical about the implications and the application of our faith. In the midst of this hinge, it's going to almost seem like he's just kind of stacking imperatives. And that's because in the language, that's exactly what he's doing. But he's doing that for a reason. He, he wants us to understand what difference does the first 11 chapters of Romans make in our lives. It's not actually disconnected from Romans chapter 11, where he's talking about the remnant of Israel. Actually, our last point last Sunday, the foundation of the mercy of God, is really the first point for this Sunday. The mercies of God is what he's going to appeal to. Let's look at the verse together. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, we're going to kind of define some of these phrases as we go because Paul is saying a lot in a few verses. Don't be confused. We had uh, 36 verses last Sunday. Don't be confused that these two verses this Sunday are any less rich with things that God wants to speak to us as a church. He's not saying more or less in these things. He's actually giving direction for our lives. And we realize what Paul is helping us to understand in Romans chapter 12 is this, that the mercy of God aligns our lives to experience transformation, meaning what we believe makes a difference in how we live. What we believe makes a difference in how we live. Now, much like the hinge on that gate that I was fixing... Paul wants to make sure that our faith and our practice, that they align with one another. That they, that they come into alignment, that they, that they work properly. That we're not unhinged in the way that we live, or more importantly, that we're not unhinged in the way that we believe. The fruit flowing from one to the other matters greatly. What it is that we're relying on in the midst of this matters greatly. So today as we kind of dive into this passage, I want us to just consider the broader context. We're going to spend the next couple of weeks in Romans chapter 12. So I think it would be helpful for us to consider the context there. And, and really what is happening is Paul is beginning to kind of address some specific areas of our relationships and the effects of the gospel on them. So let's consider these. So today we're looking at this. The, the effects of the gospel on our relationship with the Lord. Uh, next Sunday, we're going to look at ourselves and the church. And then on the 11th of July, we're going to look at the church and our enemies. Uh, those are not the same thing. Let's just be clear about that from the front. Uh, they're, not, they're not, well, they're not supposed to be the same thing. We'll get there. We'll get there. Today, we're looking at our relationship with the Lord. What is the implication, what is the application of our faith with our relationship with the Lord? Paul wants us to get this hinge just right. Now, I talked about worship earlier and how part of our giving is worshiping. 
Uh, Part of the way that we sing is worshiping, but it's not just those things. It's the way that we live at home. It's the ways that our lives are lived out in relationship with others. We'll, We'll see that in a few verses. It's the way that we are at work, that we're not somebody different there. There's actually some very specific language about love not being hypocritical in Romans chapter 12. It's about the way that our relationships play out on campus where at times we have to make a stand for our faith in ways that might even be unexpected. You see, we're always worshiping. Our lives are always pointing to the value and the worth of something. We are always worshiping, but the question is, what's the object of that worship? Is it our own desires? Is it the American dream? Is it the thing that we're trying to build so that we can leave it to our children? Is it the... Well, insert your own objects of worship here. Paul wants us to have an object of our worship. And he wants it to be the foundation of our lives in Jesus Christ. And he makes it very clear for us. He's reiterating something to us this week that he said last week. It's the culmination of the things that we learned in the first 11 chapters of Romans. Paul wants the object of our worship to be the mercies of God. Now, if if we need mercy from God, I said it in prayer earlier, if we need mercy from God, that means that there's something else that we we deserved apart from Christ. That we deserved punishment for our sin. That there was something that, that could not be in his holy presence. We didn't deserve to be welcomed in in this way, and yet through his mercies, we're we're drawn in. Our identity is completely changed. Everything about who we are and how it is that we live is completely changed. So let's look back at verse 1 together. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So let's start in our exploration of what Paul's telling us here with his appeal. Paul is, now maybe I I use the ESV in preaching uh, most often. In in personal study at times, I'll I'll switch back and forth between the ESV and CSB. Uh, But you may have a different translation of the Bible. Your Bible's not broken. Your app's not on the wrong setting or anything like that. If you see some of these words as well, you might see the word urging. You might see the word beseeching or exhorting. Some of your translations may say those things instead of an appeal. This is actually one of Paul's favorite verbs in the Greek. And it has all of these elements to it. So when translators were kind of rendering from the original Greek, some of them made those types of choices to help try to to express what it is that Paul is getting at. He's not just kind of like, I appeal to you, therefore. You know, like this is a this is a strong request. He he really wants to get our attention with what he's saying now. I'm making an appeal to you that something be different. Because of what I've been saying up to this point. Now, we remember that these chapter and verse divisions, they were not a part of Paul's original letter. This would have all just been read almost as if it were one sermon to the church back in the day. Paul most likely kind of wrote it in one train of thought. That must have been a long day. And the church would have heard it in one kind of thought. 
So we're focusing on two verses of it, but in the midst of everything that's going on, Paul kind of says, I appeal to you about something. And he he wants to kind of build off of, he's going to springboard off of what it is that he's been saying in the first 11 chapters. But he's appealing in the same way that a leader may call out troops who are about to go into battle. He's kind of calling us to attention. Something big is about to happen. You need to hear what it is that I'm saying so that we can live rightly. He's calling us to attention. And he says, I appeal therefore. Now this is, in, in, in this particular translation of the Bible, this is the ninth of 17 therefores. Have you noticed that yet? We've said therefore a lot in this series. Paul's, Paul is building this argument, and he's building it on what he just said, and then he builds a little more, and he says, look back at this. He says, build a little more, and he says, look back at this. And today he's doing that again. Now, you may just think, it's another therefore. What's it there for? Like, that's a classic past, pastor cliche, right? If you see the word therefore, you have to ask the question, what's it there for? Many scholars would say this. This represents one of the more significant therefores up to this point in Paul's writing. There's a bit of an emphasis added in his appeal. I appeal, therefore, because of this appeal, because of me calling you attention, look at this, and then let's live like it. That's what he wants to draw our attention to. Now, I'm not here to argue with biblical scholars. This is a bit of a hinge in what it is that Paul is saying. In theological terms, we might say that he is marrying together orthodoxy, that is right thinking, with orthopraxy, that is right living. And he's bringing those two together. So he's saying, I appeal, therefore. Look at the rich things that I've said up to this point. Look at the the filling things, the the spirit-filled, fruitful life of the believer that you're going to hear about in just a second have to be built on the foundation that I have built in the last 11 chapters. I appeal, therefore. So let's just take a moment to look at some of the therefores that we've seen up to this point. I think there's, there's four that are very significant for us today. Romans chapter 2, verse 1, it says, uh, he's talking about the therefore of condemnation. What is that? There is therefore now no condemnation. That kind of matters a lot. Based on the mercies of God, there's no condemnation. For those who believe. What about Romans 5.1? The therefore of justification. That is because of Jesus' perfect and holy finished work. It's not up to our effort to gain any type of merit before the throne of God. The therefore of justification. Romans 8.1. It brings this therefore of assurance for us as his followers. There is a, there is a surety that we can have in our faith. That it's not up to us in how we live. And today we come to a therefore that talks about the dedication. In some church circles you might hear the consecration of our lives. Being set apart entirely. Being set apart wholly for the work of God. All of who we are set apart for the mercy of God. Not just one mercy. Actually, Paul goes on to say in this first verse that there are multiple mercies of God. In the same way that there are multiple therefores, and we just looked at a few, there are multiple mercies of God. What are some of the mercies of God that we can see? Well, just from Romans 1 through 11, 
we think of these, that we are justified, that we're saved by grace alone, by faith alone. That we are dead to sin, but alive to Christ. So we're already starting to see the implications of our faith, that there is something that is supposed to be lived out in life for God. That we are dead to sin and we are alive to Christ, that we have been adopted into God's family. I don't know your family name. Every once in a while, if I'm afraid that my boys are going to do something embarrassing, I say, just remember the family name that you represent. And they say, that's right, Kester. (laughs) It's a great joke. Oh, I don't know if Kelly and Barbara knew that. Oh, well. (laughs) Now, it's a a joke, isn't it? But is there any better family name to be adopted into than sons and daughters of God? Remember the name that you represent. That we're under the power of grace and not the power of the law. I am more and more aware at how inept the law is, even today, at dealing with the hearts of men. But as a church, as those who've been called by his name, who've been washed by his blood, we're not under the law's power. We're under the power of grace, and there can be change and transformation that comes as a result of that. We are, we are ones who possess the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. These are things that Paul points us to in the first 11 chapters of Romans alone. It's, it's the theme of what we've been talking, to, uh, talking about up to this point, that there is no condemnation in Christ. And based on that no condemnation in Christ, there is a promise of future glory for those who believe. What are you walking through today? Does it feel like garbage? Does it feel like the low point in life? Can I tell you this? That is not the eternity that you've been called to. I'm not here to tell you that life is going to look like sunshine and roses here on earth, but I can tell you this. There is an eternity that has been prepared for us by the one who saved us. We have certain hope in that. That we are not separated from God. Do you feel alone in your faith? Are you at that point where it seems like you are just growing weary of walking alone? Can I tell you this? You are not alone. You are not separated from God. He is with you and he is able. And we can have confidence in God's faithfulness based on his faithfulness to Israel. That our confidence is not shaken in the midst of these moments. You know, as I've been studying this last couple of weeks, you know the song that came to mind is the old hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Morning by morning. New what? Mercies. Not mercy. Mercies I see. May our eyes be more and more consumed by the mercies of God. May it just animate our minds. May it just bring our minds to life. May it it say to our soul, live for the one who saved you. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. See, unless God had granted us those mercies, none of us would have a desire to live for him. Unless God granted us those mercies, we wouldn't be able to obey Paul's exhortation that we'll see in just a moment to present ourselves see Paul's making an appeal here for our lives to reflect an inward change but he makes this appeal on the based on the mercies of God if we just try to live in our own efforts 
we just try to like do right so we can be right, that's a failing faith. It might last for a moment, but it will not see you through to eternity. Because it's not a faith in Jesus and his finished work. Let us build our lives on his mercies alone. Let that be the foundation that we live for. The mercy of God, his kindness toward us. Even when we deserved punishment for our sins, that we have been saved from something, to be sure. It's the foundation that we build our lives on for what we've been saved for. We've been saved for the way that we live out our lives for God. Now, he wants us in his appeal, therefore, to present ourselves. Now, what does this mean to present? He, it's, a, it's, it's participation. He told us this in Romans chapter 6 in verses 13, 16, and 19, that we're not going to keep presenting ourselves to the things that are not of God, but we're going to present ourselves before God. That is, we're going to yield to him. We're going to participate in what it is that he's calling us to. Now, it's important to make a connection here that, that the body is the instrument through which we express ourselves. So setting ourselves aside for his purpose, as I said a moment ago, consecrating ourselves for the purposes of God is a deliberate action. It, it's, it's an intentional thought. It's something that we give attention to. See, often in our faith, we talk about our hearts being changed. And I wonder today how many, is, how many of us have settled with surrendering our hearts and the rest of us needs to follow. Paul sees a direct connection between our hearts and our bodies. The things that we surrender to, the things that we present ourselves to, the things that we allow in. David acknowledges this in Psalm 139, and Jesus often speaks of our outward actions coming from the heart. That is the engine, the drive, the thing that, that motivates us to move forward. And in the argument that Paul is making here, the thing that motivates us to present ourselves to the right things and not the things of the world. So there's a, a direct connection between the bodies we're called to present as living sacrifices and the heart that's driving them. I love what A.W. Tozer says about presenting our bodies that helps make this whole being connection. Consider these words. Present your bodies, that is, present your vessel. That must come first. A vessel that has not been presented will not be filled. Feeling empty? Present yourself. God cannot fill what he cannot have. Present your vessel. If you will not present your personality, you will not get the fullness of the Spirit of God. All right, Tozer, you're messing with us here a little bit now. You're getting close like, that's who I am. Yeah. God calls us to present those things to him. He goes on to say this, Are you ready to present your body with all of its functions and all that it contains, your mind, your personality, your spirit, your love, your ambitions, your all? This is the first thing. It can be a simple act, presenting the body. Are you willing to do it? Presenting our whole self, all of who we are. We're not separated into these divisions of personality. We're not separated into these things that are like Myers-Briggs over here, Enneagrams over here. No, God doesn't categorize in that way. He, he is the one 
over all of these things and saying, give me your all. Yesterday we had a a wedding here. And it was a wonderful celebration, but what I didn't hear the bride and groom say were things like this. I am going to give you this ability of mine and nothing else. I didn't hear them say things like this. I give you this aspect of who I am and that alone. That would make for a strange ceremony, wouldn't it? I mean, we kind of talked about the covenant of marriage throughout Romans a little bit in in helping us make the connection to what the covenants are. And this is one of the earthly relationships that helps us see these things very clearly. But that would be a strange ceremony to sit through. I think at some point, like, we'd start to see heads turn like this, like, what? Or somebody kind of like, was that an option? (laughs) No. Don't ask your spouse that. That's a dangerous question. Laugh at it here. Don't do it at home. No, it's not an option, is it? And these symbols like that we wear that represent that covenant. Right? We talk about the, the, the ring. It's made of something pure. It's been refined. And, and it's in a circle and it just goes on and on and on. It doesn't end. Like, my wedding band is effective all the time as presenting my whole self to Stephanie. When, when I go to work, that doesn't change. When I'm out in recreation, that doesn't change. If this earthly relationship represents that in some very practical way, how much more does the relationship with our Creator mean? That we present our whole selves all the time. See, we need these covenant reminders. Like what we'll celebrate shortly in communion. We need these covenant reminders. Why is it that we need those things? Because the world relentlessly is going to appeal to our selfishness and our pride. It's going to appeal to the things that erode our covenant relationship most quickly. But when we have this continual submission to God, our hearts and lives, not maybe, our hearts and lives will be transformed by God's power. Perhaps you're at a place today where you say, I am tired of living this way. I'm tired of struggling with these things. Can I ask you a very simple question? Have you presented yourself before the Lord? Have you laid this on His altar? There's an assurance that comes from the Holy Spirit that in doing so, we will not receive the punishment of death that we deserve. But we can live for Him. And we can live for Him in a way that Paul calls a living sacrifice seems like an oxymoron, but it, it, it's at the very center of, who, of our faith. It's at the very center of the way that our actions kind of flow out of what's happened in us internally. When we, when we prepare for weddings, oftentimes we say, that day is not like the bride doesn't look at the groom and say, wow, after that ceremony, I actually loved you. I can tell you something. Like, we would nix it in premarital's if that was the case, right? 
There, there's a question that I ask early on in premaritals. I say, why is it that you want to get married? And be like, well, we really need the ceremony to love one another. Whoa! We are not moving forward. Danger. Or, or how about this? Like, we're not really attracted to each other. What? Like, I don't necessarily want to be with them, but like, I feel called to it. Dangerous. That, no. There's something dangerous about that. And in the same way in our covenant relationship with God, He has been running after us. He is the faithful groom toward his, his bride, the church. He has been pursuing us from the beginning. He has been rushing after us, as we read a few weeks ago, with his arms extended toward us in mercy and in love. He doesn't need that moment to all of a sudden think like, well, now I love them. It's been his heart toward us as his people, as his creation all along. How is it that we'll respond? Well, may we be a living sacrifice. Now, some, some of us may be asked of the Lord to die for him. That's, that's really not the point of the message today. But don't miss this, church. As his people, he calls all of us to live for him. None of us escape that aspect of what our life in Christ should look like. Should look like, meaning that it's visible to those around us. There's something tangible that is expressed. He calls all of us to live for him. Now, under the old covenants, you see this most often in the Old Testament. A worshiper would bring an animal to the temple. And as an atonement for their sin, this animal would be laid on the altar it would be killed. There would be this blood sacrifice. Ours is a bloody faith. There would be this blood sacrifice, and the animal would be laid on the altar to be consumed by the fire. It would be consumed completely. It's like extra well done. All of it. All of it has been laid on the altar to be consumed by the fire. But Paul kind of reverses the imagery for us here. He reverses the imagery saying, bring yourself to the altar, but do not die for God, live for him. To be a living sacrifice. Tim Keller says it this way, to be a living sacrifice is to be fully at God's disposal. It means actively to be willing to obey God in anything he says in any area of life and passively to be willing to thank God for anything that he sends in any area of life. No stone unturned, no aspect of who we are. But you may wonder, why does it matter that it's a living sacrifice? Saying that the sacrifice is living, Paul wants to make this point to us. It is constant. It is a constant sacrifice. No, no matter how, you have, how long you have been walking with the Lord or you've experienced the salvation of the Lord, whether that's been a day, a month, a year, a decade, or so long ago you don't even recall. You are called to be a living sacrifice. This never ends. Until the Lord returns, we are called to be a living sacrifice. So he's combining the meaning of two things. There's the sacrifice, this 
killing. It's a living killing. It's a constant killing. It's a living sacrifice. That's Paul's point here. He wants us to see how how much this affects. But here's a question for us today. Do our lives reflect this? Do our lives reflect that we are a living sacrifice? Or as I said earlier, have we allowed the heart change to be enough and the rest of us hasn't followed? Are there ways that we've stopped short and accepted the heart change, the salvation, the blessings, but we've not started to experience the transformation on the outward? I ask this because in the temple service, that sacrifice was consumed in whole. No part of it left untouched. No part of it left uncharred by the fire on the altar. It was a complete offering. I love what D.L. Moody said once in observing this passage. He said this, The problem with the living sacrifice is that it keeps crawling off the altar. I think the problem in the church universal today is we haven't put our whole selves on the altar to begin with. May our offering be complete. May we be consumed in whole. But, but why? What is it all supposed to amount to? What is, it, what is it all supposed to point to? When we answer this appeal, when we build on the mercies of God, when we offer ourselves in this living death, it is a spiritual act of worship. So what, what does Paul mean by spiritual worship? Like we were singing earlier, is that not spiritual enough? Like we had tongues and interpretation this morning. That seems pretty spiritual to me. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Another way to render this phrase from the original Greek in the translation might be this. That it is a rational service. So it's not just singing. It's not just showing the inner life. It's a spiritual worthship, showing the worth and the majesty and the honor of Jesus through our outward actions. And just as a reminder... Living for Jesus isn't checking our minds at the door. It isn't checking our personalities. It's bringing them under the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's not even changing the things that we might struggle with perpetually for years. It's also submitting that to the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's a very rational, it's, it's a logical, it's, it's a thinking that flows from a right understanding of the mercies of God freely available to us, to you and to me right now, the mercies of God. So when we rise, mercies. When we lay down, mercies. When we go throughout our day, we experience and can freely receive and live in the good of the mercies of God. That is our spiritual act of worship. I said this earlier that The mercy of God aligns our lives to experience transformation, meaning what we believe makes a difference in how we live. And here's where that hinge is starting to to come in because we've looked at the first part of that statement, that God's mercy aligns our lives to experience transformation. But how does that second part happen? We're going to play this out over the weeks ahead. But how is it that what we believe inside begins to make any difference in the way that we live? It's important to understand It's important to understand this so that we don't kind of veer into legalism or moralism. It's important to understand this rightly. Let let these be the curbs 
of the straight and narrow path that we're called to as believers. Let it kind of gently bring us back in when we start to lean one way or the other so that we might walk rightly. We, see, we don't go back to the law. We don't put Jesus back on the cross. We don't, we don't say we need a better Savior. We need somebody more sufficient. Like, we never say those things out loud, but do we live that way at times? It's not about our efforts either. It's not about this right and chaste life. Certainly there is life that is to be lived that glorifies God, and there are ways that we dishonor His name. But how is it that He's saying it's not about your effort either? Jesus said, I've paid it all. It's finished. And He commits Himself into the hands of God in the same way that David cast himself on mercy. Let's look at verse 2 together. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Another way to paraphrase the opening of verse 2 might be this. Don't be molded by the ever-changing spirit of the age. Don't be molded by the ever-changing schemes of the age is another way to render that. I know one who schemes. He's the enemy of my soul. He doesn't bring life. He, brings, he drags us into death. There is a wage for the sin when we give over to that, and it is death as we saw in Rome, in, earlier in Romans. But he's one who schemes to devour Don't be molded by his ever-changing schemes. Doesn't that kind of capture how the world can feel at times, this this change that never ends? And I'm not talking about the good kind of change. I'm talking about changes just like, this is exhausting. I can't keep up with this anymore. I'm more and more discouraged by the day. Now, I'm not not here to kind of like rail against, quote-unquote, the media, I had to stop watching the news, though, some time ago because it wasn't leading to transformation for me. There wasn't like this spiritual vibrancy that came when I turned off the 6 o'clock news like, well, fruit of the Spirit. It was terrible. My heart was burdened in those moments. What does it do? It highlights the challenges of a fallen, broken world Wrestling with being molded by the spirit of the age. I'm grateful for godly journalists. But they are few and far far between in network news, aren't they? We have to consider those things. For our own soul's good. See, there's, there's beauty in the world. There's beauty in the world worth highlighting and fighting for, but... Paul's concern is that we are aware enough of the world to be in it, but not of it. Not floating along blithely. Not just going along, unaware of our surrounded surroundings, unaware of the created purpose to bring God glory in creation, unaware of our role in redeeming that creation for His kingdom that we are an ambassador for. That is the kingdom of God. So don't be conformed. What a slightly offensive word, right? Revolutions don't start with this. Everybody chanting, conformity! We might have gotten that word wrong. I I don't see church statements that are out there saying like, come be conformed. 
It's an offensive word. Conformity. I don't know a single generation that's been like, let's embrace conformity. Like, there's generational differences to be sure, but this is the same. Gross. Conformity. He says, don't be conformed. Well, what does that kind of assume? If you're not being transformed, you are being conformed. Cookies are conformed when you use a cookie cutter on them. Don't be that. Even as Tozer said earlier, he's going he's to bring our minds and our gifts and our abilities and our talents and those, those things that are natural to us. He's going to bring our personality. He's going to bring our very soul under this lordship. And he doesn't say be conformed. What does he say? Be transformed. This metamorphosis that happens. Butterflies are transformed. A beauty that comes from something. I don't know if you've ever seen a butterfly before, but they're not pretty. I don't think. I don't know. I don't think a lot of people are drawing a lot of pictures of those moments. What are they drawing? They want to draw our eye to the beauty of transformation. Certainly there's the process. We learned about that earlier of sanctification, that metamorphosis. So don't be conformed, be transformed. Why is not being conformed important to Paul? Because as a believer, our lives are an outward representation of what's going on on the inside. In the same way that a wedding is an outward celebration of what's already been going on in the hearts of the two people that we're rejoicing with. It's not happening in that moment. When Shane said yesterday, I now pronounce you, it wasn't like love. No, that was there before. It was already there inside them. We were just celebrating publicly what's already been going on inside them. Be transformed. Paul here wants to contrast two very constant actions, conformity and transformation. And as believers, it's important to understand we've not been called to conformity. We've been called to be transformed. No matter how long you've been walking with the Lord, a day, a decade, a lifetime. Be transformed. In the same way that being a living sacrifice is a constant state, being transformed is a constant state as well. And can I ask you this question, and I mean this very graciously, when was the last time you were transformed? What was the last area of your life that, that the Lord revealed something to you that, that actually changed empowered by the Holy Spirit and the gifts of grace that are around us in community and in the way that God equips us and informs us through his word that there is actual change, a tangible change and a difference in who you are. When was the last time you were transformed? We're going to come back to that question in just a moment in communion. Paul's not striking a passive tone. He's definitely playing some games with the Greek language. But he's not striking a passive tone. He, he wants us to understand that he's not just putting in some kind of filler words so that he can like make this word count to turn this paper in. Oh, you know, I got, I got to get a couple another. Thee, thou, thine. That, that'll do. No, he's not, he's not trying to like just use filler here. He's making an important point about our faith. 
matters to Paul because if we don't get this right, if we're focused on the wrong things, we're going to slip into a self-righteousness. We're going to slip into thinking that there's some ability in ourselves to accomplish something that would go against the first 11 chapters of what he's written. In his hinge, he doesn't start making a point contrary to what he's already said. He says, this is important to get right so that you live right and you believe right. Isn't it kind of God in our faith not to leave us unhinged? Isn't it kind of God to inspire his servant Paul in writing scripture to not give so much focus on one thing that he leaves something else completely undone? I don't know about you, but my temptation at times personally, when I'm, when I'm walking through something, when the Holy Spirit is revealing some way that he wants to bring about change in my life, I can kind of like fly off unhinged in my thinking sometimes. You know, my, my planner, my to-do list all of a sudden looks like do better, be better. Like I start sounding like Kanye West song. Faster, stronger, better. No, wait a minute, that's not Faith. And yet God doesn't leave us unhinged. He gently brings us back into alignment over and over again. Why? Because he has mercies. He has mercies available to us today. He doesn't leave us wondering how to live. He doesn't leave us just going, look, I have a new heart. I wish I knew how to show people. No, he he instructs us how to show people the new life, the new heart, the new mind that we have. In Jesus Christ. He doesn't leave us wondering how to love him. How to receive from him. That we present ourselves as, as vessels to be filled. That's going to be important when we look at the, the spiritual gifts in just a couple of weeks. It's going to be important as we look at how it is that we are to express love in the church and in the world. It's going to be important for us to understand that that presentation is a part of the process. And unlike the Philadelphia 76ers, God's process works. I'm glad like five sports fans got that reference. And I'm okay with that. We can trust his process. We can trust his good purposes. But can I say this? Like, let, let's think about this long haul wise. He doesn't promise that that's going to happen in a sermon or on a Sunday or in one sitting in devotional. What does he say he's going to do it? One degree of glory for another. Are we as a church, as individuals, are we prepared not only for in presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice in this constant state, not being conformed, being transformed, this constant leaning, this constant inclination of our heart, this posture of our minds, this opening of our eyes, this opening of our ears, this living and walking out for him, are we prepared individually for the one degree of glory to another that that change is going to come? Be careful how you answer that question because i got another one for you. Are you prepared to walk through somebody else's degrees too? Are you prepared to walk in one direction with somebody toward Jesus, however quickly or however slowly it may happen? Because that's what it means to be in community in the church. See, we don't give sitcom answers to faith. It's not done in 30 minutes with a laugh track. Nobody's applauding at the end of a community group. Well, most community groups that I've ever been. Maybe it's just the ones I lead. Nobody applauds. Does that happen in your community? 
Okay, good, I'm, I'm encouraged then. Fine. If it doesn't happen in the other community groups, that's great. Nobody's kind of applauding like as the credits roll. Look at the change that happened tonight. Nah, they're just going to live, right? Doesn't quite happen that way, does it? No, it's a long walk in a Godward direction. Are we prepared to walk with others? Are we prepared to have others walk with us? What's the point of the transformation that we've called to? Through the renewal of our mind and going against the schemes and the, the things of this world, the things of this age. Paul goes on to say at the end of verse 2 that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now in the weeks ahead, good, acceptable, and perfect, they're going to be spelled out in some fairly specific detail for us. So we're not going to give as much time there today. Hear these words from John Stott on this passage though. Hear then the stages of Christian moral transformation. First, our mind is renewed by the word and spirit of God. Then we are able to discern and desire the will of God. And then we are increasingly transformed by it. For today, let's make sure that we have a sure foundation in our understanding that the mercy of God is what it is that aligns our lives to experience transformation. Meaning what we believe makes a difference in how we live. See, there's one that poured out his life perfectly and sets an example for us to look to. He was provided for us in Jesus Christ. He offered his body on our behalf. He did not conform to the world, but he transformed the world everywhere that he went. He is good and he is himself acceptable and perfect. We're going to prepare for communion now. And, and I just want to say, actually, let me make sure I got, yeah. If you didn't receive some of the communion elements, uh, we have ushers that are going to be going around with the elements should you need them. If you're here today and you've not put your faith in Jesus Christ, we, we would simply ask you to do this. Just allow the elements to pass. See, in the same way that the, the wedding ceremony is a sacred act before holy God, so is this. It's a sacred act before a holy God. It should be done through saving faith alone. But it's important for us not to take the metaphor of a living sacrifice too far. See, the atoning work is the work that Christ alone could do on our behalf. His was the ultimate blood offering on our behalf. And Jesus freely offers that to us today. What God has required, he has provided for us in Jesus Christ. I said this earlier that the body is the instrument through which we express ourselves, that we present ourselves to the world, that we present ourselves before God. So where we feel empty because of the world, where we long for something to satisfy our souls, Jesus offers us himself through his body and blood. Well, it's represented here in bread and the cup let us not be one, like the ones who in the garden selfishly took for themselves who went and they, they let's receive this as the gift of grace given to empty vessels presented to God alone and let this be something that is filling at the very core of who we are Where is it that you feasted on the world? 
Where is it that you've gone along with the schemes of the age? Where is it that we have given ourselves, that we have presented ourselves to the world? And where is it that God calls us to lay that on the altar to be a living sacrifice? May the rest of us follow the heart that's been renewed. And may we be consumed wholly for his holy name. See, to be a disciple of Jesus means that we are not just looking back to the cross with gratitude. We're, we're engaging with Jesus as our active Savior today. We have this allegiance that we have with him, that we are presenting ourselves to, but we also do this. We look forward in hope. And in this forward-looking hope in God's kingdom, that's what provides for us resources, the things that we need to be able to endure, to be able to live for him in the radically different ways that Jesus calls us to. As I've been preparing over the last several weeks, we're going to take a moment in silence just before Allie leads us in a worship song in reflection, and then we prepare our hearts to receive the elements as we close out our service today. There's been a question that's been coming to mind I haven't been able to shake, and so allow me to place it in your mind as well. When was the last time we experienced conviction in receiving communion? See, the good news is if we experience conviction in receiving communion, communion reminds us of the thing that redeems us, and it satisfies that conviction that we experience. But perhaps today... And thinking about things that God may show us where it is that we fall short, where it is that he's calling us to lay something on the altar as a living sacrifice. I don't mean a guilt, but an awareness of where it is that God is calling us by his mercies to change. When was the last time we experienced conviction in receiving communion? I'd wonder if it's been a while, might that show us where we've been conformed more than transformed in our spiritual walk? So as we prepare our hearts today, I want to be clear. I'm not asking this question to add some sense of condemnation. It's more of an invitation to do what Scripture calls us to do in participating in the Lord's Supper. It's, a, it's an invitation to examine our hearts. Let's look at what's going on in our lives. Let's evaluate the very engine that drives us and then what we do when something is exposed. We receive His mercy. We receive that in these elements. We receive His mercy. We look to Him for strength to change. And we learn to walk in the way that he has called us to. So we're going to take just a moment in silence. I do understand that for some of us, one of the most frightening places to be is alone with our own thoughts. You are surrounded by friends and people who love you. So in this moment of silence, you are not alone. We are here with you, but I want to invite you to feel free to just sit there, to, to kneel if you feel that's appropriate, if you want to stand, if, if you want to to lay before the Lord, why is it that we might do that? To listen for what the Holy Spirit would speak to you.
to, to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal where it is that God wants to bring our lives into alignment to his kingdom for his glory. Can we prepare our hearts now, church?